Aloha, this is Dr. Tiki, and my prescription for you is to listen to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you can be so easily! It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess, and we will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. You know, I really shouldn't be watching that 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 tiger thing uh, on Netflix. It's just <laughs> screwing me up. I really want to start the podcast by saying, "Hello cats and kittens," but let's not. <laughs> Welcome to yet another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night, the only podcast that's guaranteed if you listen, you can hear stuff. In this week's episode number 438, we expect blood, so let's see how that works out. Uh, we're still kind of in our pandemonium pandemic phase of shows uh, because uh, the web is so finicky and the need for social distancing. The world is on the web and it's difficult to get a good signal. So tonight it's just a paired back cast again tonight, hoping for the best. In the broadcast facility with me tonight is Captain Cam. How are you doing, Cam? So far so good. I got my popcorn, got my rum, I've got, I've sit, got my feet up and we're ready to talk. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, here, here's a guy who's coming up who's like maybe I think one or two uh, appearances away from uh, being a full-time member of the Five Timers Club. <laughs> He's we've had him on a couple of times before. Uh, we've had him on again, and uh, it's kind of because we like the way he writes and we like what he does. Welcome back to Sci-Fi Saturday Night, Curtis Lawson. Curtis, welcome back, my friend. Thank you so much. For those of you who missed Curtis's early appearances in episodes 345 and 416. He is one of the coolest horror writers around. I got schooled by a horror writer, um, 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 a, a very famous horror writer, as a matter of fact, called, uh, by the name of Christopher Golden. I don't know if you, if you know who Chris is. Yes, I know Chris. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a very old friend of mine. I've known Chris for maybe 15 or 16 years. And during that time, we were sitting in a convention one day. I think I was actually interviewing him. And I said, you know, I never really thought of you as a horror writer. And when he stopped laughing, which took about four or five minutes, he just kind of riddled through, you know, listed through everything of his that I had ever read. And he went, well, that was horror. And I went, no, not really. And that was horror. And I went, well, it had elements. And it, because, you know, the mark of a good horror writer is the level of unpredictability that he brings to the situation. Cam and I were talking earlier about, quote, horror writers, quote. I'm air quotes now for those of you who can't see me on audio. <laughs> <laughs> and we were saying, you know, 
if you're aficionado, uh, aficionado <laughs> of a lot of the uh, B-grade horror movies, you see the the girl sweating and panting and stopping at the corner and afraid to look around it. And you know, because you've seen this in a hundred other of these goddamn movies, that the thing, whatever it is, is going to come around the corner, grab her by the face, whip it off into a splurk of blood. And I believe that is the the professional term for it, a splurk of blood. And uh, because you see it a hundred times or you've read read it a hundred times. And in reading the book we're going to talk about tonight, which I haven't bothered to mention yet, (laughs) uh, it's called the Blackheart Boys Choir. No, it isn't. It's called Blackheart Boys Choir. There wasn't a point during the reading of this book where I said to myself, oh, fuck, I know what happens next. I've seen this a hundred times. Not once, man. That's good to hear. It should be. I, I kept sitting there, and then Cam and I talked about the ending for about half an hour, literally half an hour ago. <laughs> and the uh, the writing method that you used in the last the last chapter, which was kind of really nifty without being cute, which would have been the last thing you wanted at a time like that. I mean, it it was a real risk that you took, which was blurring that line between the fantasy and reality of the situation, or was it really fantasy, or was it really reality, and letting, letting the reader come to that conclusion. And it could have come out really kind of cutesy, because I've seen it happen that way, and it didn't. It was one of the most enhancing uh, styles that I've ever seen an ending uh, work with. So kudos, my friend. That was really the best last couple of pair, uh, last couple of uh, chapters uh, of a book I've read in a while. Thank you so much. Yeah, you, it's funny you mentioned that you know taking a chance there because I feel. I feel like everything I did in this book was taking a chance. And uh, from the conception of it, I was sitting there. I was like, well, let's do a first person present tense. People hate that. Let's do an irredeemable protagonist. People hate that. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, you know, we're not going to have a redemption arc. So uh, no, it's, it's not a redemption arc. In here. Yeah. Oh, so, my God, no. <laughs> everything I did in the book, I, I felt like I, I was really taking a chance and I, I kind of second guessed it the whole, I didn't second guess the book itself, but I second guessed the rec- the reception it would get, I guess, um, because I, t- I took a lot of risk with it, but I think it paid off. I, I think that because of the stylistic chances that you took throughout, uh, throughout the book, if, Anybody gives this a fair read and a fair read to me is if by 50 pages in you're not engaged, then you're never going to be. But I was like in like two paragraphs and I was. I like this. I like the way this tastes Mm -hmm. because it has it has a taste to me that's not fair for me to say. Um I have a tendency to listen to music when I read books and I'll read like the first couple of pages, maybe the first uh, chapter or so. 
and then I'll look around for a piece of music that I think will enhance and, and just kind of help me stay within the framework of the book. This one was uh, Pablo Casal's uh, Bach Cello Sonatas 1 and 3. Nice. <laughs> fitting. Mm-hmm. And fitting because you did, you made what to most writers would be a fatal error. You are, you make significant specific referencing throughout the book to classical music, to mythology, to demonology. And trust me, I sat there and I looked every one of those damn things up, the ones I didn't know. <laughs> and there weren't that many of them that I didn't know, and I felt really good about that. And man, you're right on target. Every, nothing, nothing pulls you out of the suspension of disbelief more than the errant gumdrop. Yep, for sure. But that one spot where you go, shit, that couldn't be that, or no, that's wrong. And all of a sudden, that rapport that you've built with the book, with with the story, with with the characters, just kind of bubble gets burst. And you're done. You're done. I, I, I rarely can go back to books like that. And as I'm sitting here, I'm literally going, I can't find a thing. Everything ties. Everything makes sense. With the exception of one question that I have for you that may or may not have anything to do with the book whatsoever. All right. Did you ever read the book, see the movie Clockwork Orange? Oh, man. Clockwork Orange was a giant influence on this. <laughs> <laughs> Huge influence. Um, Nailed it. Nailed it. A Clockwork Orange, American Psycho, The Music of Aragon, and Fight Club were probably the main influences. And and with A a Clockwork Orange and American Psycho, when I was – I'm – I'm a plotter, like a huge plotter, you know, and for, um, I have to, I have to plan out everything. So before I, I even planned out this story, I went through the spark notes of American Psycho and A Clockwork Orange. And I, I, I went through the themes, I went through them by chapter by chapter and their structures. And I really tried to pull out what worked from those books, especially with, you know, an irredeemable protagonist. So, um, yeah, I, I intensely studied both of those books before I wrote this. But the movie, the movie for me was my introduction to Clockwork Orange. Oh, mine too, yes. And your book, this book, many of your books read like a movie script. Not because... You have shot, you have angle, you have the, the person's name, what he says, the next person's name, what he says, what the movie is. It's not written like a movie script. But the book is the essence of visual writing, where a scene is developed one small iota at a time until the tableau is completely set as the narrative is finished for the scene. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I, that sounds like I'm doing my job right. And I, I think part of that is um, a lot of people say that I have a very visual writing style. And I think part of it is because I, I wrote comics for like 10 years before I started writing prose. So I just I'm kind of naturally a visual storyteller. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, but there see, but there's there's the visual storyteller who will tell you 
the faded tattoo on the left upper forearm used to say mom, but the name had been dis, you know, and they go into such excruciating detail that by the time you're done with that description, you don't give a crap anymore. Uh, yeah, and that that sort of writing has always turned me off. It always bores me a little bit. And I know some people are into that that ultra detail. But once again, going back to writing comics for so long, there's um Will Eisner wrote this book about writing comics back in the day, and a lot of it is about using visual shorthand and you know how to economy of economy of panels, economy of storytelling. And so I try to. I try to use that in all my work. I try to, like you said, to paint the picture within the narrative, you know, have them intertwined in such a way that I'm, I'm not spending 10 paragraphs describing something. Um, and sometimes that's through the use of shorthand techniques or whatnot. Um, I just think it, it makes everything flow much quicker. And I think it was Kurt Vonnegut in, you know, one of the, when I first started writing, I was reading some of his stuff on writing and he said, you know, cut all the boring shit. And I, I took that <laughs> as gospel. So, <laughs> And it's something Vonnegut definitely would have said. Yeah. No question about it. And at the same time, he would drop an obscure reference in the middle of everything and dare you to figure it out. Yes. <laughs> so talk for a little bit about to to the person who hasn't read it yet. And damn well should by the time we're done here. Uh, talk about what Blackheart Boys Choir is about. Well, on the surface, it's about a teenage misfit. He's uh, very precocious. He's 16 years old, and he is dealing with some familial tra tragedy. His father has killed himself a few years back, and his mother squandered their money and fell into addiction and depression. And he finds himself having to transfer from this academy that he was going to to finish uh, his senior year at a public school and he doesn't make it easy on himself. He will only dress in suits and ties and he only listens to classical music. And he has this kind of air of superiority because he is very smart and he is very talented. He's a musical prodigy and, you know, he's come from some money and he just doesn't know how to, uh, he doesn't know how to balance his own worth with any sort of modesty, I guess. And he's also dealing with a lot of anger because, you know, he, he's angry at his father for for abandoning him, so, much, so to speak, through suicide. And he's angry at his mother for falling into depression and not being there for him. And he's angry at the world. So he ends up... Um, you know, at this new school, he doesn't get along with anyone except for this one kid. And he finds a piece of music, an unfinished piece of music that his father wrote with a collaborator. And it's all blacked out. All the notes are like covered in ink and such. And he becomes obsessed with finishing this piece of music. And as he does, is he tries to uncover it. Every time he gets kind of visited by this demonic force, which essentially tells him that in exchange for doing or committing violent deeds, more of the song will be revealed to him. And it's kind of unclear whether any of that is real or if it's all in his head. And 
as the, the book continues on, he falls into a spiral of violence and insanity, and um, it all ends pretty grimly. So, I, I would say it's not necessarily a good time, happy ending for damn sure. No. <laughs> and, and yet, you make a couple of very bold statements uh, about all the things that he's angry about, and one of them is uh, the abandonment by, abandonment by his father and the abandonment by his mother, which halfway through the book, we're not so sure why that abandonment occurred. Uh, in fact, Cam, you had a theory as to, you know, what happened to the mother. Well, it was something I did want to mention was the fact that when you start out, you know, you think you know these characters. And in truth, Lucian, I think you do, which is the main character. But there's certain characters, and the mother's one of them, where you think, okay, she's just somebody that's wallowing in her own grief, and she's drinking herself to death and doing drugs. And then you start, as you get moving along, and you start getting more pieces of information that are just kind of slid in there little bit by little bit, you start realizing, is she truly grieving a lost husband? Or is there something worse? Did what her husband was doing drive her to where she is now? And that's my theory, is as I was reading this, I'm looking at this going, I'm not so sure that this is a mother who, you know, abandoned her family as much as she was driven there by what her husband was doing. And this was her only means of coping. And there's a lot of characters like that. But that's my theory on the mother is that. I'm looking at her going, you know, wait a minute. I mean, I thought, you know, chapter two, three, I knew this character. And then we get further on. It's like, wait a minute. Why is she you know, doing all these drugs and doing all of this stuff to try to forget the past? And that was my theory. And I want to know, am I close or is, am I even, even remotely uh, anywhere in the wheelhouse here? You know, I, I think that you're definitely in the wheelhouse. I, think i thought it out to that extent um there was definitely more than just you know the the suicide going on and you can you can see some of that in the things these memories that, that lucine gets um so i think you're definitely on the right track and i did try to put in little things like that for a lot of the characters because it's all told through through his point of view so i wanted to put in little things to show the reader that the world isn't necessarily as he sees it. And even the, his, his big bully, Ari Cole there, you find out at one point that, you know, his mother slept with Asher's brother, who's much younger than her. And, um, you know, I tried to allude that, that he has these problems at home. And then his other kind of nemesis, this girl, Violet, who he hates and he's in love with at the same time or in lust with, I guess, um, you see that she has some trouble at home. And I wanted to to point out that there are these things going on, these problems that he doesn't see because he's so into his own problems. He's so self-absorbed, you know? Yeah, Violet was another great example where you get you you've read in so many so many chapters, you go, Oh, she's just your typical mean girl. You know, and then all of a sudden you start getting these little things like the bruise that you know lucian sees at one point and you start realizing oh there's a deeper story with this young lady 
and you start because like you said you and Dome said this is not this not a happy ending you know the character grows and becomes better by the end but there are certain characters that do grow and like one character is Maxwell and while I won't say he had a happy ending because he didn't (laughs) by a long shot he grows so much right up until that moment where he has his unhappy ending he grows so much as a character and I love that was watching Maxwell and it comes as a blindside because like you said we're seeing this from Lucian's point of view and then all of a sudden Lucian gets blindsided by Maxwell's growing into a into a fully formed human being as opposed to Lucian who's stuck in his little world of his father's music yes and well, um you know Maxwell was one of my favorite characters to write and I I knew I knew what I was going to do to him the whole time and um, nice it was yeah, but he was I, – I really did try to put a lot into his growth and, and make a, a very solid character with him because he's really the only good guy in the book. You know, if I didn't feel so bad about what happened to him in the end only because I'd seen him become redeemed. He had redeemed himself where none of the other characters or a lot of the, the other main characters – I don't want to get too much into mm-hmm. it because I want people to read this, but he's the one character that redeems himself – and says, so by the time the horrible thing happens to him, I'm looking at him going, fly away free, Maxwell. <laughs> you're, you're, you're free from Lucian's spell. Because he really is. He's become this whole person. And so it was like I got to that point and said, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Nothing good was going to come out of this. I didn't see a happy ending. But at least I knew that he had some happiness in his life before it happened. Yes. And that kind of made me feel good. The, the one character I felt really bad for was um, probably a secondary, possibly even a tertiary character, uh, Miss Kane. Yes. I, I. What bothered me most about her is that Lucian's anger and 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 frustration had built so deeply inside him that he never had the ability to recognize that there was one adult who actually gave a shit. Yes, exactly. He was so just filled with, with anger and, and blinded by his own, by his own tragedy and such that, that he couldn't see it. And, and also by, by his ego to a certain extent, because you know, she didn't understand, you know, the greatness of the music that he liked, you know, you know, like she, she wasn't as cultured as he was in his own mind. Um, so he was blinded to, to someone actually trying to help him. It's, uh, it's, it, it's a, this is a nice, and this is a poor way to put it. This is a nice playground to read about because there's nothing there's nothing loose about this book. Everything feels like a coiled rope that just twists tighter and tighter and everything just flows towards that eventual bloody end that you know belongs at the end of every one of these books. And as you're getting there, 
you're you're becoming more involved as a reader. This one was fun, man. It was fun to read, really. Thank you, thank you. You know, like I said, it it's been received fairly well. It made the preliminary ballot for the Bram Stoker Awards, which was cool. Um, but you know, it's not for everybody. There's definitely been some reviewers who who just hated it because they they hated Lucian, you know. And I get that. He, it's it's definitely you know not what? Everybody. That's a win. Yeah. <laughs> That's an so, absolute win, man. I mean, you know, if you hate that much that character, that means it got to you. Not yes. because if you really hated it, you wouldn't have finished the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tossed it away. But you finished it, you hated him, and you had to tell the person who wrote it just how much you hated him. <laughs> That's a freaking win, my friend. Truly. I agree. <laughs> How did how did you get to, to to writing this way about this stuff? Did it always come naturally to you? You talking about the subject matter in boys choir or just just, just horror writing in general? I it's always been one of those people tend to want to pigeonhole uh, or every every writer that ever existed everywhere. Oh, he writes science fiction. Oh, he writes fantasy. You know, that that kind of crap. And and you, your stuff tends to be what I've read of it. And I haven't read all of it, but I've read you've been on the show three times. So I've read a couple of your things and they all tend to be very, very tight, very smart, uh, very horror, but not in the way you expect them to play out or you expect them to be horror stories. Where did that where did that come from? I think I, it just came from a. I never went in for that whole that whole pigeonholing thing. Like you were saying, I guess I. I struggled for a long time to define what I do because I've always dealt in dark themes. I guess um, when I first started writing, actually, I wanted to write for Marvel. That was my big thing. I wanted to write X Men comics and all this, and I didn't realize that that I probably wasn't the right guy for that. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. And but it, even then, you know, I wrote. Um, I had a superhero webcomic called Curse of the Black Terror, and that was really dark. I had a sci-fi webcomic called Divis Morde, which was a really dark sci-fi webcomic. Um, I did some horror comics. And everything I did had some elements of horror, I guess. And it probably goes into just what I read and watched and listened to as a kid. You know, I grew up listening to metal and I watched horror movies. Uh, you know, I lived in the VHS horror section as a kid. And um <laughs> And then I've read a lot of a lot of darker fantasy and horror and dark sci-fi growing up. And um, I just when I write stuff, I don't really think in terms of I want to write in this genre. I just I have a bunch of cool ideas or, you know, a, a theme that I want to work with. And I just write what comes naturally, I guess. And it, it tends to fall under horror of some sort. So how did you muse your way into this one? Was it a character? Was it the music? Was it Amadeus? Was it the the mythology? Where where was the 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 little egg there? It was actually the title. So Blackheart Boys Choir came to my <laughs> the 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 name came to my mind probably like I don't know ten years ago, and I thought it'd be a cool band name. And I didn't play in bands anymore, and I was too old to be in a any band that said boys choir in it <laughs> anyway. So I, um, I just kind of sat on it and, um, 
I was like, oh, maybe I'll start like a gorillas type band and everything will be animated. And like, you know, I'll have these like choir, these evil choir boys. And, you know, I never did that because I just never I was never very good at music to to begin with, honestly. Um, And then I was like, why don't I try to make a story out of it? What would be a cool story? And that's how it started. And I had wanted to write something that had to do with resentment and with mass violence. And um, it just kind of all the ideas from these different kind of proto projects I had just seemed to mesh together. And the reason I chose classical music was actually going back to a clockwork orange, you know, Anthony Burgess, he talked about like all the, all the weird slang they use in a clockwork orange. He did that because he didn't want to be dated in 10 years, you know, or 20 years, whatever, you know, it's 1980 and some kids reading this and Alex is like, Oh, let's do some groovy violence. Um, And I thought of the same thing because, you know, like I said, I grew up in metal and punk scenes and that's even now that's not really a a thing anymore for young kids. Um, You know, it's kind of like, like metal's like an old man thing now. Um, So (laughs) God, that's sad. Uh. And um, so I figured any subculture has an expiration date, but what if I made a subculture out of classical music? You know, it doesn't exist, but it's also timeless. So that's why I went with the classical music thing. And it was, it was so rewarding to fall down that rabbit hole. And I'd always kind of, I've liked classical music, but I had never been an expert on it per se. And going down that rabbit hole of the research for that book was, was very rewarding. And what ties the classical music together with the occult is a piece of music called the madrigal of the world's end. Yes. Talk to me about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the madrigal of the world's end, I, you know, it took me a while to figure out what, how I wanted to make, how I wanted the music to be represented. And the, a magical, you know, I did a lot of research on the history of, of choral music. And um, I found some old magicals that I thought would work pretty well. So that's why I went with that concept. But I also wanted to structure it more on like a symphonic structure, but for choral. So it has movements, which you know, a, a magical typically doesn't. And one of the things I did with the book is I split the book into movements to mirror the magical of the world's end. And no one's going to notice this, but which I, I, I was did. too stupid to get until the very end. All right. I mean, I sat there and I looked at the end of, 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 of the, uh, the third section of the book and I went, Shit, he's been stringing me along the whole time. Well, it's funny, Dome. I picked that one up early because I was looking at this going, and I started quick flipping through it. I'm going, oh, my, that's ex- I love this. Each one of them's part of his song. I was like, I love that part. That was I felt like such parts. an ass when I finally figured it out. <laughs> Seriously. Well, Ugh. one of the things I did with that, um, which no one will notice once again, is I tried to structure each section with the time signature that that movement would be in. And I think it mentions all the time signatures that the different movements are at some point. But I think Dance of Deposed King is, is in um, like three, four timing, which is waltz timing. So the first section, the first chapter in the section will be about like a, a fantastical flashback, like a, a dream sequence with Lucian. Then the next chapter will be something happening in the real world and how that dream sequence kind of relates to that. And then the third is him meeting with Miss Kane or some other adult and 
them not being able to save him. And then it goes back to a dream sequence. So it was like one, two, three, one, two, three. Um, and I tried to do that with each section to mirror the time signatures. And I also did other musical things where I, I would do these lay motifs where I would take um, entire passages and repeat them at different points through the story and, you know, just change a little bit. And you um, would freeze them from time to time as well. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, there are discussions that Maxwell and Lucian have that uh, Lucian's father and Philip Gravetree also have. Um, and it would just be slightly, slightly different. And then the first chapter and the last chapter have a lot of, you know, whole paragraphs that are copied from one another. And so I tried to do a lot of musical structure in the book. And once again, I don't think anybody will notice that, but it it was rewarding to me. Well, what, what makes that work, at least from my point of view, is if you've got a guy who's like into horror and is reading this, and is into teen angst, you've got it covered and you cover it in, in clear detail, sometimes in gory detail, but in clear detail. If you've got a horror reader who's really deeply into classical music, you've got him hooked because you're throwing shit at him left and right under the table, right in his face. And every one of the facts makes sense and is right. And, you know, and if you're, You've got a horror reader who's into mysticism and demonology and how it affects the world of now or how it could affect. You're doing the same thing. You're throwing high balls. You're throwing low balls. You're hitting them with the balls. And you're going, prove me wrong, buddy, because I checked this out and it's right. So the prep for this one is amazing. Yeah, I I did a lot of prep work and I have to, you know, I have to thank some folks. I, I have a, a friend, Mike Balzotti, who was I was in a band with and he's he does musical theater and he's very into classical music. He read it and fact checked it. Um, S.T. Joshi gave it a copy edit and he fact checked it. Um, and, you know, I had some help making sure that I didn't mess anything up. To, to our, our wonderful listeners out there who are sitting in this time of uh, viral inequity and need to spend an afternoon in terror that has nothing to do with a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> take some time and take a look at this book. It's called Blackheart Boys Choir. The author is Curtis J. Lawson, guy we've been talking um, to the past. Did I say J? You said J. <laughs> Son of a bitch. You know, I got through this whole thing and didn't fuck your name up once. Uh, it happens. No, it happens to me every show. <laughs> At least you didn't call me Travis. That happens sometimes. <laughs> Curtis M. Lawson, a uh, great friend of the show, terrific writer. Click the links below if you want to read his book. Curtis, man, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family. Now on Amazon 
and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you can find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watts sauce. We have, we love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Their grooves can be found on lawrencemademecry.com. And a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. There once was a girl from Nantucket. Good night, everybody. Yay!